How's everyone doing this morning? Good? Okay, good. A very happy good. Um, before we get started and jump into our series, First Peter Exiles, today, um, we want to take a moment, since it is Memorial Weekend, um, just to honor those who have fallen in service of our country uh, to make this, what we're doing, happen uh, freely and openly. And so for a moment, if, if we could just have a moment of silence um, right now, uh, let, let's have it. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, we just want to respect them, and it, we know it's tomorrow, but we still wanted to honor them today just because it enables us to do things like this and to gather uh, here freely and openly, and it's just an amazing freedom that we do have here in this country. But anyways, uh, my name is Nathan. I am the Connection and College Pastor, and today I am so excited to be in this text, First Peter. Um, but before we jump in, I want to highlight one more quick thing that was said in the announcements, and that is our Affinity Day. Uh, we are super excited for this day coming up on June 13th, just because we've never really had anything like this before, but also because it's going to be another way for us to really achieve our vision here at Hope Fellowship, which is to truly become and belong. And so Affinity Day, it's a tough word to say, um, is centered around any interest that you may have. Like it said, like I think I want to do the food one because I am good at eating, um, and so I think I might be doing that one. Um, so anyways, uh, one thing I wanted to highlight about this day, though, is that it needs leaders, people who start these groups centered around those interests. And so it's a really thing to, easy thing to do. All you have to do is either talk to me in the lobby after service or go to our website and sign up through the Connection Groups page and say, I want to be a, a leader. It, it's not a massive commitment. All you're doing is essentially going to be holding a sign on June 13th of your interest, a specific interest, and then people will come to you in your booth outside and sign up there. You guys will be in a big group chat, and then if it's a hiking group, for instance, let's say um, if somebody wants to go hiking and they say, hey, I'm going hiking this Saturday, someone come join me, um, then that's how it can be. It can be a loose structure or a rigid structure of we're going to meet once a month, every single month, um, somewhere. So we're super excited about this. Um, and so, yeah, just wanted to make sure that we were highlighting that as the connection pastor. I feel like I need to, but also I want to. Um, so anyways, first Peter, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, it is today a really rich text that is uh, laced with Jewish themes from Peter's background. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to read first Peter two, one through 12, all up front first, just so that we can get a picture and an idea of what Peter is saying here. And I know it's 12 verses, but I believe in us that we can do it today. So let's begin by reading first Peter chapter two, um, verse one today. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray before we jump into this sermon today. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the fact that we have the ability and the freedom to come here, to gather together, to be built up as a spiritual house, God. God, right now I pray for you just to reveal your presence, which is already in this place to each of us, to make yourself known to us, God, and for us to learn more of you so that we can live and love both you and those around us better, God. We pray for this text to speak to us today. We love you. It's your name we pray. Everybody said, amen. All right, so you can already start to see themes that Peter is touching on in these 12 verses that he's already kind of been hitting, whether it be the new hope that changes how we live or putting on this holy or being holy as he is holy, which changes our character and relationships. As Pastor Mark touched on last week, you can see all of these themes. And what we have to remember is that Peter here is writing from a Jewish perspective that is extremely practical. And so what he's doing in these 12 verses is he's taking a concept that is somewhat complex that Paul uh, touches on in Romans and Ephesians and John even talks about in 1 John, talking about how when we have this new identity, it changes how we live our life and it changes how we love those around us. And he does this by putting two illustrations back to back. So one illustration he uses is to show how we are to be growing individually as we have this new identity. And the other illustration shows how we are to be building up each other, the the church, God's kingdom, he calls it a spiritual house, uh, in our faith when we have this new identity. So let's go ahead and jump into this first illustration, though, as it pertains to our individual growth. He starts off chapter 2, verse 1, with this, so put away, and we have to pause there for him, because when he says the word so, he is referencing and concluding a previous point that he has already made, that specifically being in 1 Peter 1, 22, When he writes, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so what we can do in this, we can draw a line from that phrase, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, to what he says in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That if we are believers and we have this new identity and in turn a new love, then we cannot respond to the world in the way in which it treats us. That when we have this real love residing in us, our lives cannot be marked by malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander. That we have to look different. What he's essentially saying is that as believers, you cannot be or act like the mean girls. Maybe a rough reference to use in church, but has anyone ever seen mean girls? Come on. Raise a hand proudly if you've seen it. Sterling, thank you. Yes, sir. Come on. He, he was the only one to go like this. Everyone else was down here. He was straight up. Anyways... He's really referencing these mean girls. He's describing someone who are, people who are insecure and prideful and uh, fleshly oriented. It really is a revealing, the response to the world shows their emotional immaturity. And he's saying that we are to put those things away because if you are a believer today, if you are a believer today and claiming to believe that someone claiming to be spiritually mature or spiritually growing cannot be emotionally immature. 
Remember the crowd that he's writing to. He's writing to an audience who's being persecuted by people. The, the world in which these early believers are living in is one that is marked by malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander directed towards them. And yet he's saying, because you have a new hope, a living hope, because you have a new identity, that you should respond differently. Someone claiming to be spiritually mature cannot be emotionally immature because there is a direct correlation between the two. And I think a lot of times in our walk, we separate those two ideas. We keep our spirituality at times out of our emotions or our physical life or our social life. When in reality, if we are growing spiritually, that should drastically affect our emotional, physical, and social maturity. Peter Scazzaro says in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, denying any aspect of what it means to be a fully human person made in the image of God carries with it catastrophic long-term consequences in our relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves. Trumper Longman also says that emotions are the language of the soul, and what they are saying and what Peter is saying to us today is that our emotional response to the situations in our life reveal where we are on our spiritual journey. How we respond to things emotionally reveal where we are spiritually. And there's a reason that Peter is applying practical characteristics to our spiritual maturity, because he's saying that if we are growing, then our lives cannot be marked by these characteristics, this behavior, or this emotion, because we have something different in us. It's a natural progression of our faith that when we are growing closer to God, we are maturing in every aspect of our life. And Peter, being the practical writer that he is, I love this about him. He doesn't just say, so put away all these things. He says, let me tell you how to put those things away. He says that you are to be tasting and seeing and being nourished by this spiritual milk. He's saying that if you eat the right foods, you're going to grow. And this is not a new concept to us. Hopefully, it's not a new concept to us. If you're trying to lose weight, but you eat McDonald's three times a day, every single day in the week, that's probably not the best diet. However, if it is working for you, please tell me, because I would absolutely love that diet. Okay, but he's also saying if you're trying to bulk up for your summer body, you don't just eat kale. You need protein. You need sustenance. I'm not saying that we can't be vegans or anything like that. I'm just saying you need something besides kale if you're trying to bulk up. And what he uses here is that as infants need this milk in order to grow... We should be longing for this same spiritual milk. I don't know if anybody here has a child or has ever had a child. We've all been children, so we don't really remember what it's like to be an infant, but that's besides the point. Um, I do not have a child, and this is not an announcement with me and my wife, Cassie. Nope. Um, But I do have three older sisters who all have kids. So I've been around these infants when they start desiring uh, and craving this milk. And they go from these angels, just sweethearts, to these fallen angels extremely quickly, right? I mean, like, it goes from, like, sweet hiccups and laughter to all of a sudden they're just screaming or crying or screaming and crying. But the moment that they get that milk that they are desiring, they instantly, well, most of the time they settle down, they fall asleep, wake up, crap their diaper, right? I mean, that's just the reality of it. Um... And then it's just this cycle over and over and over again. It's great birth control to be around. It's like, we can wait to have some kids. Absolutely. Hallelujah and amen. Okay. I'm getting sidetracked. (laughs) But this is what Peter is saying, that we should be craving this spiritual milk just like babies crave this milk, that it is ingrained in their very nature to want this milk. That when we are not only longing for, but tasting the spiritual milk, it causes us to grow closer to him. So we have to ask, what is this spiritual milk? 
And I hate to beat a dead horse, but the spiritual milk that he is talking about is the word of God. It is the way in which God has chosen to reveal himself to us. It may sound repetitive because we did it the very first week too. And I know Pastor Mark focused a little bit on it as well last week. But the word of God is how we know him enough to have a sanctifying relationship with him. But what Peter is also doing here when he uses this word spiritual milk is he's not only referring to this word of God. He's also referring to the word of God. Jesus. And he's saying in order to grow, you need to be both tasting and seeing his words and tasting and seeing him in the context of a relationship through prayer, through community with other believers, through worship. And that when we are eating this right food, when we are eating the thing, the only thing that can truly nourish our spirituality, then we are going to grow. And this growth is an integral part of our faith because it is the progress of our personal faith that we are sanctified in. Not saved in, but sanctified in. It's the progress, not perfection. We say it a lot here, but it's really what it comes down to. It's about the process of our faith growing closer to him. And as we come to him through scripture and prayer and worship, we are going to grow because it is impossible to encounter the living God and not experience some sort of change. It leads us into verse 4 where he starts off, as you come to him, as you come to him, digging into him, tasting and seeing that he is good, not only are we going to grow individually, he says, but that there's also going to be this corporate growth that we should see and should crave. Verse 4 and 5, he says, as you come to him, A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's saying that Jesus Christ is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, that we are chosen and precious if we believe in him, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ. If we are believers in the room today, we should be built up with other believers on the foundation of Jesus and through the power of Jesus Christ to be a spiritual house. And once again, it comes back to who's writing this book. It's Peter who's writing from this Jewish understanding and perspective. So in order for us to fully understand the significance of what he's saying when he uses words uh, like living stones or a spiritual house or a holy priesthood or spiritual sacrifices, we have to understand the knowledge that he is writing from, the understanding of temple worship. And we don't have the hours needed to go into the temple worship. And I don't think any of us want to be here maybe till 5 o'clock learning about the temple, even though it's absolutely fascinating and you should be doing it on your own time for sure. But he talks about this temple and that we are now this temple in what he calls a spiritual house. The temple, plain and simple, was the place where God's people would go to worship because it was the place where God chose to dwell. And in this temple, his his residing there created this holiness that not everyone could go into and, and, and speak directly to him or offer sacrifices directly to him. And so he set apart a specific people in the tribe of Israel as priests, people who would go and make those uh, sacrifices of atonement and the wave offerings of the chickens that you read about in Levit- Leviticus and all those fun things. They would do all of that for these people that they would truly intercede on their behalf. It's a rough definition of the temple, but the temple was an essential place for the people of God to be made right with God and to know God. So it makes it that much more impactful for us today when Peter calls us both a priest, someone who can now communicate directly with the living God through Jesus Christ, and also a living stone, the part of the temple where the sacrifice is actually made, that we are both the temple in which the sacrifice is made and the priest who is offering the sacrifice to God through Jesus You and I, if you are a believer in the room today or watching from church at home, are to be built up together 
through Christ and on the foundation of Christ to be his temple, meaning the place where he dwells. Jesus says in the Gospels, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. He's not saying that if you're by yourself, he isn't with you, right? That's not what he promised when he left us. He's saying that when we are together, we are most effectively reflecting the glory of God. That there is something special about being together in this capacity on a Sunday morning. And what we have to remember, once again, is the audience of this text. He's writing to a group of scattered Christians who are unable to gather together because they are being persecuted. They're not getting together just because they're lazy or they don't want to. They're not getting together because they have been physically scattered due to persecution, and yet he still tells them that it is important to be built up together. He understands the importance of what it says in Acts chapter 2, and it says that they were gathering in the homes and in the temple, that there's not an overemphasis on either or, that it is both in our context today, Sunday morning, and throughout the week that is absolutely important for individual and corporate growth closer to God. And that whenever we overemphasize one or the other, we are doing a disservice and we are not understanding our purpose as his people with this new identity. What Peter uses to allude to this is his second illustration of being this living stone. And he reveals that there are two types of stones. And he says, those who believe are living stones. Sorry, did not mean to bend down that way. Um, Living stones. Right? These are living stones, people who have been redeemed by God, people who have been chosen and made precious by God. These are living stones. And he says there are other people who are rock. In verse 8 and 7 and 8, he says those are, they are those who disobey and stumble as they were destined to do, that this is just a rock. It may look like a stone, but it's in reality just a rock because it looks no different uh, than the rest of the rocks that are in the ground. But he says this living stone is something that has been formed and made. And what he's saying to this group of people is that you are either a rock and your life doesn't look any different than the world around you, or you're a living stone and you need to be built up with other living stones. That yes, you are a living stone that you come into and you process and you progress as a living stone in your life individually. But there's also this corporate aspect that is absolutely essential to your faith. Where it's still an individual living stone being placed, but that you're being placed with other living stones to become what he calls a spiritual house. And you'll have to imagine, what is a pink feather? You'll have to imagine that this is a spiritual house. I think it comes to a point where I have to put this into the context of our culture that we are living in today because scripture is written to a specific group of people, but it's still written for you and I today. And so it brings us to this point that I have to make that I think that there are two types of people and there's a lot of different, this is a generalized statement, but there are two different types of people that can be both a rock or a living stone. For instance, a rock. We can be a rock in this room today if we come here every single Sunday and yet no aspect of our life changes. If we come every single Sunday faithfully, whether it be for a year or five years or 30 years, but we don't change the rest of our life. That if you go out into the world, no one would know that you were a believer. And what Peter is saying here is that if this tries to be a part of this, then the reality of that matter is is that this structure is not going to stand. It will always stand because Christ is but the foundation of what it's being built up on. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that he can do more damage or more hurt because the structure is not going to be completely Okay, I don't want to break into stage. Well, I balanced that. That's not intentional. Right? It's going to be unsteady, right? So he's saying that if you're a rock, you have to understand 
that it's not just about Sundays. It's not just about gathering together. Sundays cannot save us today. Sundays are not enough to have a sanctifying relationship with God. So if the only time that you are ever encountering and coming in contact with the living God that you know of is a Sunday morning, then you have to ask yourself, have you truly tasted and seen that he is good? Because if you have, then the rest of your life is going to change and you're going to start to look a little bit more like this. But he also says something else. He says that as a living stone, you have a purpose to be built up together. That You can be a living stone, but if you do not gather together with his people, then you're just a stone. A brick with other bricks can make a beautiful house, but a brick by itself is just a brick. So this is where I feel like I have to talk directly to the church at home people, and I pray that you hear this not in a way that is bad. I understand that there are people out there who have medical issues, and that's why they're not here right now, or they're working on Sundays just to make ends meet, and maybe it's Memorial Day weekend, and you're out on vacation, and you're watching this, and you're like, shoot, I should be clicking off right now. Just stay on for a quick second. Because I also think that there are people, I think if the reason if we're not gathering here is because it's easier to watch it at home, then my heart breaks Because in order to be a part of his people, you have to be with his people. And I totally get it. I understand the ease of church at home. I understand sometimes how we can maybe misunderstand the importance of this Sunday morning. And we think, well, it's just cultural. It's not really that important. I was there a couple years ago. If you would have talked to me, I did not really like Sunday mornings. I thought they were kind of like, you know what? They're not really that important. It's more important about who you're gathering with throughout the week. And I had such an overemphasis on the in-homes part of Acts chapter 2. And I never even paid attention to the temple until one, God was kind of slowly progressing me towards that and breaking down my heart. But there was a moment in COVID, about a month in, you know, everyone knows what COVID was like. I mean, you were in the couch, in your pajamas with biscuits and bacon and eggs watching church. Was it a dream? It was heaven on earth. But about a month in, I remember turning to Cassie and going, man, I miss these people. People were just lighting up the comment section, and you could just tell people were craving that human interaction. And I just remember going, man, I wish I could be in person talking to these people. And I get that we can't talk to every single person here in the room today, but there's still something about being together, because as Peter writes, it most effectively reflects God, God's glory. And so if you're not gathering with us together today or in the context of a local church because you may not be in Anderson, if you're not gathering together with a body of believers on a Sunday morning, then we just want to say we miss you. We miss having you here like our body would miss our hand or our body would miss our foot. We miss you. Not for the sake of, man, we want to have more numbers here on Sunday morning. Man, we want to have a a higher giving on Sunday morning. It's not any of that. It's we want to see your face and worship the God who created all of us together. That if you say that you're a living stone and your life, and you change the way you live your life, but you never gather with other believers, then in reality you could be doing, you could be something that's supposed to be constructive and really be destructive. That if you're not gathering here and you're missing, then what was made to be constructive to build up the people of God could be something that does more harm than help. That we're a group of believers, we're a body of believers here in Anderson that have a unique gifting, that are all diverse in the way that God has gifted you, in the way that God has created you, and yet we still are all living storms. We're not to be uniformed, we are to be conformed to Christ. 
And in that, it creates us this craving, not only to grow ourselves individually, but also to build up his house as a spiritual house to most effectively reflect the glory of God. So if you're a living stone today, or you claim to be, but you're not with other living stones, then you may just be a brick. And if you, you come here every Sunday morning, you say that you're a Christian, but your life doesn't look any different, then you're just the rock. Not the rock, because he's awesome, but a rock. Okay? It's what Peter is communicating here in this text, that growth is synonymous with our salvation, both individually and corporately. So if there's ever a moment that we are complacent or lackadaisical or we just don't really care, then we have to ask ourselves, have we truly tasted and seen that he is good? And if we have, are we still continuing to nourish ourselves with that same thing that we tasted? And what I love about Peter is that he says this really challenging thing, and then he brings us back to this hope. Because maybe as I'm talking today, maybe you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I haven't done my devotion in like two weeks, but I'm definitely a Christian, I think. Like, am I really saved? Or maybe you're over here like, I haven't made it to church in a couple weeks because we just have had so much stuff going on and I've had work. Am I really saved? He's not, me- he's not meaning to question our salvation. He's encouraging us to make an understanding and to look at our life from a third, a 30,000 view and to see what we need to change in our life in order that we may grow closer to him. And so if you're doubting your salvation today, and if you've made a profession, but now you're thinking, well, wait, am I really saved? Because sometimes I don't look like a Christian, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I maybe give someone a certain thing towards someone when they're driving and they cut me off. Or maybe sometimes I cut someone in line because I'm really just in a hurry and I want to do this. Am I really a Christian? He's saying, he brings it back to this hope and this assurance that we find in Christ. Because in verse 9, he says, but you... All of these tough things. And he says, but you are a chosen race that God has chosen you. You did not choose him. God chose you and brought you back to life. A dead man cannot grab a life raft. God physically brought you back to life from the dead of the sin that you were in. He chose you. So it doesn't rest on you of how well you're doing in your faith right now. It rests on what he's already deemed you, which is chosen and precious. You're also a royal priesthood. He says, you have been set apart for something special. And you're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's providing to us the hope that we root ourselves in in the midst of when our life is going great and when our life is going not great. When we feel like we're growing spiritually and in the times when we feel like we are stagnant, he is telling us, to root yourselves in this hope, to taste and see that he is good because it will create a craving in you that can only be nourished through the word of God. He goes through these two illustrations to tell us that we're going to look different, that we're elect exiles. He goes through these two illustrations to tell us that we have received now the blessings that were promised to Israel and not only that, we have also received the responsibility that comes with that blessing. It brings us to this last part in 1 Peter 9-12 through 12 that I already read a portion of that as God's people, we have a responsibility. He doesn't just choose us so we can sit back in a lazy boy, pull the thing up like uh, Joey and Chandler and friends and just sit there eating pizza all day and never getting out of the chair. No, he chooses us so that we can fulfill a purpose. He provides us with a new identity so that we can now have something more and, and, and more to, to live for. And we have the same responsibility that the people of Israel did when they were God's and when they are God's people. He says that we have a responsibility to worship him and to witness of him to others. 
We have a responsibility to worship and to witness. Worship him to mean that you are giving up the things that draw you away from God as, as he says in verse 4, spiritual sacrifices. He doesn't say physical sacrifices because Christ has done that forever for us. But spiritual sacrifices, dying to our flesh and what we want daily so that we can have more of him live fully and through us. To worship him. And he says that our second responsibility to witness comes from that worship. That the more that we are worshiping him, the more that we are giving up ourselves so that he is living more fully in us, it will be a witness to others. Verse 9, he says, To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To witness what God has done in our life and to witness to what he is doing in our life in the way in which we live and the way in which we love those around us. It comes back to our character and our relationships then we are worshiping him. We are sacrificing the desires of our flesh. We are tasting and seeing and pouring and nourishing ourselves with him. It will become a witness because it will radically change every moment of our life, whether it be when we're standing in line at a grocery store or when we are dealing with a lawyer uh, because we got in a car wreck and they're trying to, to, to take something from you. It will change the smallest moments of your life and the biggest moments of your life. It goes back to how our lives look different now that we are exiles to this world and citizens of another world found in this living hope that gives us a new identity that he calls us living stones, both chosen and precious. This process that we are in in our lives is not one that is going to be easy and painless. Growth, whenever you say growth physically, oftentimes comes with growing pains. I grew four or five inches in one summer, and I was in a lot of pain that one summer in 10th grade. It comes with growing pains. Spiritual growth is oftentimes referenced in the Bible as a pruning process, that God is hacking away something in your life or a purifying fire as if it's refining a, a jewel, that there is something precious, but he has to burn away these bits that are harming us that we think are actually helping us. And in reality, they're pulling us away from God, that there is this process that is sometimes painful, but it's absolutely necessary. It's purifying and it's a sanctifying process that we go through in order to grow ourselves and those around us closer to God. C.S. Lewis um, writes a series called The Chronicles of Narnia, which if you have not read, um, you really should. It's incredible. It's not just a children's book, okay? They're absolutely incredible. And in one of those books, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a character in this story whose name is Eustace, and he's this incredibly young, annoying boy. Like, you want to smack him the entire time in this story. He's incredibly selfish and prideful, and he doesn't believe in this land of Narnia, which is a representation of heaven. And at a point in that story, because of his unbelief, he turns into this massive, ugly, knobby dragon. And it's this dragon that has such a hard shell around him that was caused by his pride and his selfishness and his unbelief that he cannot get rid of this shell himself. And there comes a point in the story when he wants to turn back into a boy, but he can't do it himself. And then this great lion named Aslan, which is representative of Jesus, comes in and he leads him to this well of water and he says just jump in this well and you'll be turned into a boy again but Eustace this now massive and ugly dragon is too big for this well and so he tries to start taking off some of his outer skins and trying to shed them and he gets like three and he just can't do it himself to the point where Aslan says you are going to have to let me undress you and I want to read from this part of the story from the perspective of Eustace he says 
I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as though I'd done it myself the other three times. Only when I did it, it did not hurt. That'll preach. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others had ever been. Then he caught me and threw me into the water. It stung like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found my pain had froze. And I found out why. I turned into a boy again. After a while, the lion took me out and dressed me with his paws in these new clothes that I'm wearing. C.S. Lewis adds to this later on to say, to go in this radically new direction feels as if God's claws are going so deeply into us that they are cutting into our very heart. When we accept Christ and we have this living hope in this new identity, it is going to radically change how you live your life. And if it doesn't, rock. Change is going to hurt, especially when the thing that God is changing is the thing that we are so and most rooted in. Growing spiritually, like I said, happens through pruning and a purifying fire. Maturing emotionally can come from painful experiences that are done through grief or like intense humiliation at times. As we grow up in this new identity, both individually and corporately, it will feel at times like his claws are cutting into our very hearts because he is rooting out these identities that we have become so wrapped up in and consumed in. But know that in the midst of that pain, whether you feel like you're in a season of fruitfulness or a season of dryness, whether you feel like he, you haven't encountered him in a while or you feel like you haven't really heard from him in a while or you feel like you're, you're really getting into the word every single day, that no matter where you are in that perspective, if you have claimed Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you have a living hope that is rooted in the past event of the resurrection and not in your life and how it's going right now. And when we gain that blessing of being shielded for and having an inheritance shielded for us, we also gain the responsibilities. Once you are not a people, he says, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The question that I want to leave us with today is how are you going to respond? If you feel like God is choosing you today, and if you feel like you are wanting to make a commitment to him today, how are you going to respond? If you have been stagnant in your faith or you've been complacent in your faith, How are you going to respond to the fact that God has chosen you and deemed you precious? How do we respond to this amazing and beautiful truth today? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this moment that we have to either start for the first time or to get ourselves back on track, God of this growth that is done through this nourishing of having a relationship with you and your people. God, I pray for this people in this room today 
for these people watching from church at home today, God, that you will instill in them a craving so, a craving so much, God, that it can only be nourished through a relationship with you, God, that they will seek out ways to nourish that through different avenues that you encounter and you and you reveal yourself to us, whether it be the word, whether it be through prayer and just talking to you or through a community of people who all love you or through worship in any of its categories, God. We pray right now for this people to be so rooted in this new hope that their new identity is revealed to the world around us, God. That people would look at us, this church, this body, us individually, and this Church Hope Fellowship and say, what do they have? What do they have? God, I pray that your character is the character that we would put on and we would put off the world so that we would look more like you and be more of a light to those around us. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.